If you have your copy of Scripture, we're in Acts chapter 13 this morning, the book of Acts chapter 13. This morning we're going to focus on verses 1 through 12 of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Barjesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. What is a church supposed to do? I don't know if you've ever given any thought to that. You know, what is it that a church is supposed to do? Some would say the primary job of the church is to care for its members. And so they would say the church is there to visit the sick, to help their members in important times like marriage and childbirth and death. The church is there to give comfort and guidance. I do believe that those are some functions of a church. They are things that we see a church often accomplish. But what if I said this morning, that is really not the main function of the church? What if I said sometimes the greatest problem faced in the church stems from the church acting as if these things were the main functions of the church and therefore they miss what the church is supposed to be doing entirely? What often happens within the body of Christ is they slip into what we call maintenance mode. You know what that is, right? That is when we are happy to keep maintaining what we've always done. Keeping our tradition, our annual this and that's, and having our little religious club while we forget about the lost that are surrounded by us. Listen carefully, the church is not here for us. 
But the church, and we are the church, is here to reach the lost. Why did Jesus come? Scripture is clear. It says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And we can't be happy with just maintaining what we are always doing. We, what we have to uh, do is continually look at reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that God is glorified in our midst. The church must be obedient by sending out workers that are called by God to preach the gospel to the glory of God. And from this point on in the book of Acts, we will see this church, this church in Antioch, have a missionary thrust. Relating in many churches, uh, uh, talking to many churches, sending to many churches, and planting many churches in the Gentile world. And what we see in chapter 13 is the beginning of the church being dedicated to their primary duty, which is the sending of missionaries. What is the church supposed to do? Send missionaries. Send missionaries. So first, let's notice as we look at this passage of Scripture, one of the first things that I believe we notice is this, that the Holy Spirit gives orders. The Holy Spirit gives orders. Look with me at verse 2. We read, The Holy Spirit said. And what did the Holy Spirit say? The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Why? For the work which I have called them. The Holy Spirit is not giving a suggestion. He's not saying, well, you know, if you really feel like it, um, if you're in the right mood, why don't you set apart for me Barnabas and Saul? But it's a command. They are told what to do. And the Holy Spirit expects obedience. So the Holy Spirit gives these orders. And we see that the Holy Spirit initiates the work. Notice the beginning of verse 2. We read, uh, these guys are worshiping and fasting. But we do not read how they devised a plan to send missionaries. We don't read that. They were not sitting around thinking, um, uh, thinking in their little group, hey, you know what? I wish our church was cooler or I wish our church, you know, was hipper or I wish our church was awesome. Instead, they're worshiping and fasting. That's what they're doing. They're worshiping and fasting and the Holy Spirit breaks in and he takes initiative and he tells them what to do. We don't know how the Holy Spirit spoke to them, but we know He did, and they are not the ones to take uh, the initiative. But instead, the Holy Spirit takes the initiative, and that is because missions originates, missions originates with God and not with man. Missions originates with God and not with man. So the Holy Spirit initiates the work. But also notice this. That the Holy Spirit, not only does the Holy Spirit initiate the work, but the Holy Spirit directs the work. The Holy Spirit directs the work. Again, verse 2 says, Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Who is I? When it says set apart Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them, who is the I? The I is the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit has a definitive word for Barnabas and Saul. We'll see that in chapter 13. However, the Spirit is directing them. In fact, if we were to speak down or look down at, at verse uh, 4 and, and peek at that, we would see this again when it says, the Holy Spirit sent them out. Plain and simply, the Holy Spirit is the one that's directing the work to be done. And so the Holy Spirit gives the orders and the Holy Spirit initiates the work and the Holy Spirit directs the work. Admittedly, this, is, this uh, seems a little different than today. What I want us to do is to see how the Holy Spirit gives these orders, initiates the work, how the Holy Spirit directs the work. How does this happen? Well, we see the reason it happens is because godly church leaders are worshiping God. And so let me just say this morning that godly church leaders must worship God. First, notice this group of people that are mentioned. We have Barnabas from Cyprus. We have a black man named Simeon. That is the description that is given him. When it says Niger, it's Latin for black. There is another Gentile mentioned named Lucius, who was possibly black, as well as there was another man, Manan, who was a part of King Herod's household. And then there's Saul. This was the church staff at Antioch. What a work of God. So many different people from all different backgrounds. And they didn't, they didn't need racial reconciliation. They were Christians before they were anything else. Remember a few weeks ago, we, we talked about how our identification isn't our race, it isn't our economic status, it isn't uh, where we live or what part of town we live in. That's not what identifies us, but we're identified as Christians, as little Christ, as those who belong to Christ. We're Christians before anything else, and these men we're from diverse backgrounds. They're from diverse social standings. And the church at Antioch reached out to all kinds of people, no matter their class, their need, their nationality, or their race. No one was excluded. But more than that, look at what's going on. They were faithful and godly men. They, they drew near to God and they were worshiping God. And it says that they were fasting. Listen, I'm certain that they were great needs in the church in Antioch. And many of the people had come from a pagan lifestyle. But that didn't keep them from seeking the Lord. Sometimes leaders can get so bogged down responding to perceived needs that they don't seek the Lord. These leaders spent time worshiping and fasting. Now fasting is, is neglected today oftentimes in the church, but it shouldn't be. Fasting is a time to seek God's direction. I know that in my own life, God has used fasting to reveal great truth to me. But leaders must be godly men. If you don't know what qualifies someone to be a leader, then then I would suggest you read 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 and realize that those are the qualifications that relate to godly character, not to leadership skill or, or charisma, but to godly character. Not only should they be godly men, but they should lead the church in knowing the truth of God's word. They are described as prophets and teachers. They knew God and they knew how to communicate his truth to his church. Not only should they be 
godly men and lead the church in knowing the truth of God's word. But there should be a plurality of leaders. Five men are mentioned here. Together they lead the church. And when it came time to send out missionaries, God didn't just send out one, but he sends out two. God designed the church this way. He designed it to be people and leaders working together to accomplish his purpose. Finally, church leaders must be obedient. Barnabas and Saul were extremely gifted men. Extremely gifted in the church. And God sent them on a missionary journey. There had to be a hole that would have been left behind after that. However, the leaders trusted the Lord. And they sent them. They, they're being sent out to declare the Lord among the nations because God's goal is His glory. It is always about His glory. And God is glorified when the people or when the gospel is preached among the nations. That's when God is glorified. So we see that all this is going on at the direction of the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. He is the one that's giving the orders. He's the one that's directing. He's the one that's initiating. And we are to be obedient by promoting God's glory among the nations, by keeping the priority in the church to send out missionaries. And that should be our main goal. And that should be our main thrust that we would be a church that sends people out into the world to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. But secondly, let's notice this, that the Holy Spirit sends. That the Holy Spirit sends. Verse 4 makes it clear that the Holy Spirit has sent Paul and Barnabas. It is interesting how simple Luke makes this. There's no big goodbye we don't read of their, of their friends kind of helping them pack everything up and get ready to go on this missionary journey. Hey, let's get all your stuff packed up so you're ready to go. We just simply read that they're being sent off by the Holy Spirit. Why is this important? Mainly because they're not going out on their own power or their own will. They're not going out because they had some sort of weird feeling down deep in their gut. They're not even going out necessarily because the church has sent them out. They also are not going out because they chose to be missionaries as a profession. They are going for one reason. Because the Holy Spirit and He is the reason they are going. He is the source of their call. The Holy Spirit is the source of their mission. Church, let me be clear. It is vital that we be sent by the Holy Spirit in any missionary endeavor. Those who are not led by the Spirit will easily give in and easily give up and be given to discouragement. Not only does the Holy Spirit send, but notice the mission. He gives them the mission. It's clear their orders came from the Holy Spirit. And as they set sail, the Lord was the captain of their ship. You know, I've heard, a, uh, I've seen a lot of those bumper stickers and I've heard about a lot of those bumper stickers that say, the Lord is my co-pilot. Well, he's not your co-pilot. He's to be the pilot. You know, Frank Sinatra sang a famous tune that many of you probably know. I'm not going to sing it and I'm not going to read the whole song. Let me read to you the last little bit. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. 
The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Yes, it was my way. Paul and Barnabas were not the masters of their own fate. They're not seeking to do it their way. They were not captains of their own souls. Christ was. Because he was their captain, he produced in them this incredible dependence upon him. And as they set sail for Cilicia, it was Saul and Barnabas declaring the glory of God to the nations. Not by their own power, not by their own piloting, but by Jesus Christ. What is the mission? Look at verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they took a vacation, sipped some margaritas at the beach, and they played a few rounds of golf, and they enjoyed themselves. Isn't that what it says? They had a good time. No, that's not what it says. What does it say? Verse 5. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Listen. Because they allowed the Holy Spirit to be their captain, they followed wherever he led. In church, that has to be our response. Don't ever say never to God. Instead, say, God, wherever you lead, I'll go. Africa, I'll go. Asia, I'll go. Haiti, I'll go. God, wherever you lead, I'll go. At the beginning of verse 6, we notice that they covered the whole island. They went from Salamis to Paphos, which was about 90 miles, proclaiming the word of God. But notice something we do not read. Nowhere in those verses, in Acts chapter 13, where they're covering the whole island, nowhere do we read of one convert. It doesn't say that they proclaimed the word and many were saved. It simply says they proclaimed the word of God. It seems like little happened in the beginning of their mission. Also notice that on this mission, they had a helper with them. They had John Mark with them. He was kind of like, a, like an intern. And he was Barnabas' young cousin. And he would later be the author of the Gospel of Mark. And we also know that Paul and Barnabas eventually split over John Mark. And we are never really given the reason why John Mark leaves. But it could have easily been because of Paul's approach towards the Gentiles. Either way, the importance is that the Holy Spirit has sent them on the mission to proclaim the gospel. He has sent them. Thirdly, thirdly, let's notice from this passage of scripture that when sharing the gospel, we must be prepared to engage the enemy. When sharing the gospel, we must be prepared to engage the enemy. Now, when we say that we have to be prepared to engage the enemy, we are talking about Satan. We're talking about the devil and demonic powers. To be clear, Satan is real. Demons are real. Satan is an angelic being who rebelled against God and took perhaps one-third of the angels with him in his rebellion, who are now demons. According to the scripture, Satan and his demons are unseen spiritual army that is at war against God and his angels. 
We know that they can inhabit the human heart. And that as believers, we are to put on the full armor of God so that we can withstand Satan and his evil forces. So in verses 6 through 8, we read of Saul and Barnabas and John Mark coming to the capital city. And there they encounter two men. One of them is a Roman governor of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus. Luke describes him as a man with intelligence, indicating that he was a man of great understanding. Sergius Paulus was searching for something that was beyond himself, obviously because he summoned Barnabas and Saul to come to him. There's another man there mentioned. This man is with Sergius Paulus. He's a magician whose name is Eliamus also known as Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of salvation. This is perhaps because he claimed to be an heir of Jesus. We don't really know. We do know that he tried to turn Sergius Paulus away from the truth of the gospel. And the scene is set for a major showdown. On one side, you have the forces of evil. And on the other side... You have the forces that are guided by the Lord. It's like an old-timey Western kind of thing, you know? It's a force. Here's the bad guys. And here's the good guys. This is why when sharing the gospel, we have to be prepared to engage the enemy. You know why? The enemy desires no one. The enemy desires no one to come to salvation. Church spiritual warfare is not some figment of the imagination. It's not some sort of made up fantasy. It's real. It happens today. The Apostle Paul says Satan is the God of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And if I'm perfectly honest, I do not fully know why God allows Satan to have so much power, but I do know this, that his power does not absolve you and I of responsibility for spiritual blindness or sin. Satan fights and he does all he can to prevent people from receiving Christ. And I would say that anyone or anything that steps in the way of someone receiving Christ is from Satan. When someone or something leads another person down a path that's away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is an instrument of Satan or they are an instrument of Satan. The enemy uses all he can to keep people from coming to Christ and remaining in spiritual blindness. The enemy is deceptive and he stands in opposition to anything that is righteous. Now, before we think that that is somehow uh, easy to, to beat Satan, that, that some, well, well, I know Satan's tricks. It says that he's full of deceit. This is the idea of seeking to set out bait to catch someone or trick them or to enslave another with an error or truth. He opposes anything that is righteous. Let's go back to what Eliamus was called. 
Bar Jesus, son of salvation. He is posing as someone who could point people to the way of salvation. He is deceptive. He is diverting people away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's trying to keep people in blindness from the righteousness that's found only in Christ. And he stands in opposition to anything that is righteous. Listen, church, it is no different today. Satan still uses deceit today. Satan is still blinding millions upon millions of people today so that they would remain in their darkness and never see the light. And he still uses people that supposedly have spiritual answers today. There are millions of people searching for spiritual answers through yoga and through meditation and through many other forms. And Satan is still at work bringing deception to the minds of people. They say, well, there's many paths to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as it is something that you believe. But that road doesn't lead to heaven, church. Not according to the word of God. That road leads to hell. The truth is, life is difficult. And even more so if we follow Christ. There's a cost for complete devotion. And if you never share your faith, then you'll never have to worry about looking bad or foolish ever. If you never share your faith. If you never stand for righteousness, you won't have to worry about ever being rejected. And if you never reach out to the needy, you'll never be taken advantage of. And if you never give your heart to someone, it will never be broken. And if you never take the gospel to a people or culture that has not heard of it, then you will never have to confront or may never have a confrontation with Satan. If you never stand for the things of Christ, then you'll never have much to worry about. But I'm here to tell you, when you follow Christ, you will have sorrow. Completely unknown to those people that don't believe in Christ. You will have trouble. You will go through pain. You will also know the joy of following the Lord of this universe. And you will know spiritual victory that's only found in allegiance to Jesus Christ. Satan is real. He's still deceiving. He's still using his same old tricks. But also notice this, church. If we want spiritual victory, we must be prepared. If we want spiritual victory, we must be prepared. I could probably go into another sermon on this point. However, I believe that our text provides plenty of information for us when it comes to achieving spiritual victory. So first, let's look at this. If we want to achieve spiritual victory, let's use this text to see how it happens. First, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9. Luke says that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we've talked a lot about the Holy Spirit in the series as we've gone through the book of Acts. Let me restate what we've already taught. We've seen that we, we receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, but that there are times that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to give testimony of Christ. Here, Paul is empowered by the Holy Spirit to confront Eliamus. In fact, he is so empowered by the Spirit that he temporarily strikes the deceiver blind. Now, if we must be filled with the Holy Spirit to ensure victory, how are we filled with the Spirit? Well, we must be under the control of the Spirit. 
In other words, we are not acting in accordance with our own selfish will, but we are acting in accordance with the Spirit's guiding. We must check our hearts before confronting someone. You say, well, well, how do I know? How do I know? Let me make it easy. Let me make it easy to know. If we're acting in accordance with the Spirit, our concern will be for God's glory. And if we're acting in accordance to our will, our concern will be for our glory. We should be concerned with the truth of the gospel and the souls of the lost. We shouldn't be concerned with proving we are right or making ourselves look good or making us look intelligent. Those things aren't from the Spirit but are motivated by selfishness. See, we have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we must be willing to confront false teaching. We must be willing to confront false teaching. Just because someone holds to wrong doctrine doesn't necessarily make them a false prophet. Not every single error in teaching needs to have some sort of, uh, uh, you know, super confrontation. Some errors are more serious than other errors. Sometimes someone is errant and they need some gentle guiding because they don't understand. However, any error that is focused around Christ and his provision of salvation is a serious error and it needs correction quickly. In order to correct error, we must be familiar with the truth. And additionally, we must use some discernment as to whether that person is intentionally teaching error. Whether they're simply a weaker Christian or whether they're just discouraged, that, that could be possible. Let's, let's be clear. Jesus had very strong words to say to those who were spiritual leaders that professed to know the truth and yet didn't teach the truth. If we see someone using false teaching that steers others from Christ, then we, we're not being loving to just kind of stand by and say nothing. That's not loving. Instead, if we want spiritual victory, we have to confront false teaching. This is what Paul did. Paul didn't just ignore Eliamus, but he confronted the false teaching. And in this case, he did so pretty harshly. But not only that, not only do we have to, if we want spiritual victory, not only do we have to confront false teaching, but we must reach out to those who are searching. We must reach out to those who are searching. Paul and Barnabas start teaching in the synagogues. Why do you think that is? Why did they teach at the Jewish synagogues? Are, uh, you know, why, why did they do that? Well, these people were following a false faith, but they at least showed some interest in things of God to be at the synagogue in the first place. So Paul and Barnabas went and declared the truth. Furthermore, Sergius Paulus is described as a man of intelligence, seemingly to indicate that he was thinking about spiritual matters, which is why he summoned Paul and Barnabas in the first place. And Paul and Barnabas said, said uh, uh, hey, let's go see him. Let's go see him. And they went and met with him. We have to be willing to do the same. If we see someone searching, we have to reach out to them. You say, well, why would I want to do that? Why in the world, if I see someone searching for spiritual truth, why would I want to reach out to them? 
My response is one verse. Romans chapter 3 verse 11. There is none who understand. And there is no one who seeks after God. You see a lot of times we want to ignore that verse in churches today. There is none who understand. And there is no one who seeks after God. So if someone is searching, why are they searching? It's not because of them. But because God is doing something in their heart. Therefore, you and I should be quick to reach out to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Additionally, if we want spiritual victory, we must present the word of God. Look at verse 12. What does it say the proconsul was astonished at? In verse 12, it says that the proconsul was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. No doubt he was also amazed at Elias being struck blind, but Luke records his astonishment at the teaching of the Lord. He now understands the glory of God found only through Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul said to Elias that he was making crooked the straight paths of the Lord, but now the proconsul understands the straight way of the Lord. He understands that God taught him and saved him 275 miles away. There were these prophets and these teachers and that they were worshiping and they were fasting and the church decided to send two of them out and they are guided to Paphos and they meet Sergius Paulus and he comes to faith through the proclamation of the word of God. That is the straight path of God. We must present The word of God. If you want spiritual victory, you have to present the word of God. And finally this. If you want spiritual victory, you must not take rejection as failure. Think back to those synagogues. When Paul and Barnabas started preaching, remember, we have no record of any salvations. Quite possibly, they encountered rejection and opposition. Obviously, there was not some sort of widespread acceptance of the message of Jesus Christ, or else it would have been recorded. However, throughout the book of Acts, we see that those that oppose the gospel, we see that those that there are those that just don't care about the gospel, and we see that there are those who receive the gospel. Here's the thing, the response of the hearer should never ever dictate your obedience don't let it happen church the response of the hearer doesn't dictate my obedience to God our job is to present the message and you leave the rest up to God because you're not in control of that your job is simply present the message and if it's rejection you don't take that as failure You say, I was obedient to what I'm supposed to do. That's that's not failure in my book. When you're obedient to the call of the Lord, that's not failure. That's obedience. What is the church supposed to do? Send missionaries. And I would contend that we're all missionaries. Certainly not in the sense of full-time missionary service, but we're all ambassadors of Christ. However, here's the thing. Many of us have, have thought that there is no way I'm sharing my faith. That's like putting a target on my back. There's no way I'm doing that. And you're right. You will have a target on your back. You will experience troubles. 
You know what Satan wants you to think? That you can't do it. He wants, you to, he wants you to think there's no way I can do this. He wants to lie to you and deceive you into thinking that it's just too hard or this surely can't be God's will. He wants to prevent the gospel from going forth. Listen to me, church. The only option for any Christian is to go into battle armed with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no trial or difficulty that Christ can't see you through. With Christ, we should be optimistic, not pessimistic. We are called to war. We must go into battle. And let's understand that through Christ, you and I are more than conquerors. Church, let's understand that God is a searching God. And He is a saving God. And He is an on-mission, making, crooked path, straightening God. And He is sending us out to seek and to save the lost. God is never in maintenance mode. He's sending. He's pursuing. He's searching. He's saving. And you and I are not to sit on the sideline, but we're to join Him in the mission. We don't maintain. We don't say, well, it would be great just to maintain. We go on mission. And though there's going to be hard situations, and though there will be difficulties, and though there will be hindrances, and though there may even be persecution, listen, God takes all the problems out of the way, and He makes crooked paths straight. Our faith and hope is in Him. And you and I, you and I have marching orders. And it's not time to maintain. It's time to march. It's time to march, church. What is the church supposed to do? Send missionaries. We're not here to maintain. We're not here to say, oh, well, you know, it's just... So happy to be in this church. It's great. I'm just going to enjoy this pew. We're here to march. We're here to proclaim the gospel. First in your city, in your state, in the United States, and to the world. Proclaim the gospel. And so my only question to you this morning is this. Are you Marching, or are you maintaining? Are you marching, or are you maintaining? Because if you're maintaining, you're not doing what God's called us to do. We need to be marching. Here in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. I'll be standing down front. Maybe you want to pray this morning. Maybe you would like me to pray with you. I'd be glad to do that. Maybe this morning you say, I'm, I'm just in maintenance mode. I need somebody to pray with me. I'd be glad to do that. Or maybe this morning you would, you would, you would say, um, I don't even know who Jesus is. And I want to know more about him. I'd be glad to share that with you this morning. The church, what are you doing? Marching or Maintaining. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank you for your word.